It was the largest empire the world has ever seen. Greater even than the Roman Empire at its absolute peak, stretching from North Africa to India. And yet, to many of us, the Abbasid Caliphate is essentially a lost world, at least until now. In the book of Roads and Kingdoms, Richard Feidler has woven together a collection of stories that together make for a rich tapestry of conquests and caliphs. His is a story of stories, of travelers, of traders, of princes, of prophets. And above everything, the book of Roads and Kingdoms transports the reader to an amazing part of the world at an amazing time. A time without GPS, a time without Uber Eats, when art, intellectualism, and trade, Islam, flourished. A time when people burning with curiosity about the world were encouraged to travel, to explore, and to discover. Richard Feidler is a broadcaster, historian, and a writer. He is the author of Ghost Empire, The Golden Maze, and the co-author of Saga Land. He is also the host of ABC Australia's incredibly popular radio program and podcast, Conversations, in which Richard draws upon his immense broadcasting, storytelling, interviewing talents, and rich conversations with interesting people. As an interviewer, I can assure you, it is always a bit intimidating <laughs> interviewing someone who's objectively better at your job than you are. <laughs> but nonetheless, it is a great pleasure to be here. Please welcome Richard Feidler. Thank you. Thank you. Do you mind, sir, talking process a little I bit? I would love to talk process. Process is, I know, a boring, boring, boring place for an interviewer to start, but I think in reading this book, your process informs so much about the way the stories are told, because these are stories of travellers with a burning curiosity around the world. I think, for me, I'm more and more inclined, the more books I write, to uh, use magical thinking when it comes to process to finding the right story and, and creeping up on them. I've found over time that the book you want to write is a skittish animal. It's sort of sitting out there in the forest somewhere. If you charge hard at it, it will scamper away. If you sort of, you know, dawdle around a bit, put a little something out there and sort of creep up on the thing, it will come towards you and eventually bring you what you need. I found this again and again. I've written about this part of the world in this period in my first book, which was called Ghost Empire, as you mentioned, which was a, a sort of a history of Constantinople, or the capital of what, we, what was called the later Roman Empire or the Eastern Roman Empire, but we now call Byzantium. And so I was familiar with the events, many of the events that take place in the Book of Roads and Kingdoms, but these are events seen from Baghdad rather than seen from Constantinople. And I wasn't gonna write this book at all when COVID struck. When COVID struck, I was planning to write another book entirely, which would have required me to do what I normally do, which is to travel out to some part of the world, uh, spend some time living there, and write a book out of it. Then travel became completely impossible, as it did for all of us. So I started thinking about writing about traveling instead. So I went to the Vikings for a bit, back to the Vikings. I'd written about Viking culture in Saga Land with my friend Kari. And I thought, look at the Eastern Vikings, the ones that went through Russia. And I found this extraordinary account. It was an account written by an Arab traveler from Baghdad named Ibn Fadlan from the 10th century of his journey from Baghdad as part of a diplomatic party up 
up to the Volga River to where a Turkic kingdom was in modern-day Russia, where, uh, uh, near the city of Kazan in Russia today. And on his journey, he described a Viking human sacrifice. And this is the only first-hand account we have of a Viking human sacrifice. And as I read Ibn Fadlan's account, he uh, was enormously entertaining. He, he left Baghdad in the year 925 on behalf of his caliph, al-Muqtadir, to be part of this diplomatic posse to form dip diplomatic relations. They were supposed to go up there to hand over a wagon load of gold so that the local king could build himself a fort and a mosque where he could sing the praises of the caliph and worship Allah in a correct manner. And they left and everything went wrong. And it sort of becomes this heart of darkness journey as they go up north, out of Iraq, up through the Caucasus, past the Caspian Sea, and, and they get into seriously frozen territory. And Ibn Fadlan is just not cut out for this kind of a journey. Ibn Fadlan is a cafe latte drinking, inner city, highly civilized uh, uh, person. He's quite, he's a little effete, very, very snobby. Uh, about things being done in the correct way, and he finds himself being forced to accept the hospitality of local Turkic tribes, and he goes, oh God, they're just so disgusting, they don't bathe properly, and oh, their food, and these people are giving him everything along the way, and he's so ungrateful. He bitches and moans, and he comes close to dying of, of cold and, and, and various things, but eventually when they arrived there, the party arrived up there uh, on the Volga River, things went extraordinarily well. The king welcomed them, they swapped robes, and then the king said, where is the money? And Ibn Fadlan said, oh, it, it, it should have arrived already. It hasn't arrived? He said, no, it's not arrived. The king got very angry and held Ibn Fadlan and his, his colleagues hostage for some months. And I think what happened then is Ibn Fadlan went through what we'd call today a, a nervous breakdown. He writes in his account of his journey seeing jinn fighting, jinn warriors fighting in the sky. And what was that? The Aurora Borealis, perhaps? Mm. He talks about being taken by the king to see the bones of a giant that the king had said they'd hanged from a tree. And he saw these gigantic bones that completely um, amazed him, which might have been from a thought out mastodon. We don't, we don't know, we don't know. And then a party of Vikings arrive, trading furs along the Volga River. They set up camp, and at first Ibn Fadlan says in his journal, he goes, oh, these people, they're so beautiful, they're completely amazing. They're tall, they've got russet hair. Their clothes are beautiful, their jewelry is amazing, they've got tattoos from their ankles up to their necks. Good God, they're amazing. Day two, with the Vikings, he writes, these are the most disgusting human beings I've ever seen in my life. He said, they have sex and defecate out in public. He says, and in the morning, the senior men gather and they, a slave brings them a wooden bowl of water, they comb their hair with it, they eject the contents of their nostrils into the bowl, and they drink from it, and they pass it down to the next man. Good God, these people are uncivilized. And then the king, the, the chieftain of the Vikings dies. And the senior men come to his slaves and say, which of you wishes to die with your master? And a slave woman puts her hand up. And for the next few days, she becomes like a sixth. bride. Uh, yeah, yeah. A, a slave, but also a kind of the bride of the dead chieftain. She's kept constantly drunk and maybe hallucinating with various herbs and perhaps mushrooms, we don't know. And then it comes time for her sacrifice. And this is take, takes place at the hands of a woman called the Angel of Death, a kind of a shamanistic witch woman. And to read the account of 
this sacrifice is, it, for me, I, it was, it's one of the most extraordinary documents I've ever read in my life. I think anyone who was there to witness it went right out to the furthest realms of human existence. This was a rite that was so steeped in blood and sex and magic and is so incredibly strange to read about. And it seems to have changed him as a man. So after this, I didn't want to write about the Vikings. I was much more interested in Ibn Fadlan. And I, I sort of traced his journey back down to Baghdad again and said, oh, are, are there other such journeys, uh, other travel accounts by writers from the Golden Age of Islam? Oh my God, I, I had no idea. There's thousands and thousands of them. Brilliant accounts. Because the, the travelers of the, uh, the people of the Abbasid Empire, based in Baghdad, were mad for books, they were mad for travel, and they were mad for books about travel. And so I found these great, this great treasury of accounts uh, in translation, uh, in various dusty corners of the internet, in various libraries and uh, library services, and put them together to present a kind of a map of the, what was the known world in the golden age of Islam. Should we talk a little bit then about how Baghdad came to be in the first place? Because uh, there's an extraordinary period of history right after the death of, of Muhammad in the, in the sort of early parts of the seventh century. What was it about the Romans and the Persians that hadn't made them terribly interested in the land that was occupied by Arabs at that stage? When you get into the seventh century CE, AD, whatever you want to call it, you have a period where the Western Roman Empire has fallen. The Eastern Roman Empire, based around Constantinople, is still there. It still runs the territories that the empire had run for hundreds of years, including you know, what is now modern-day Turkey, uh, Greece, uh, 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 Egypt, Palestine, Syria, parts of North Africa. And then there's the Sassanid Persian Empire, based around their capital in Ctesiphon, on the Tigris River in Mesopotamia. And these two em emperors were very haughty, very arrogant, uh, they called themselves the two eyes of the world. They were such elevated creatures, running such beautiful civilizations that everything else was beneath them. For centuries, both these emperors had regarded the, the Arabs, the Bedouin Arabs, as a very marginal people living in a desert land that neither of them wanted. They had client kingdoms set up on the border of Arabia, where they let them sort of run their people on their behalf. But then in the early seventh century, the Romans and the Persians went to war one of those all-out totalizing wars which left both empires utterly drained. And this was coming off uh, the plague of Justinian a century earlier, which had come back again and again, the Black Death, bring, culling the, the populations of both their empires. And this meant that when all this was going on, they weren't paying attention to what was going on in the Arabian Peninsula, which was that the tribes of Arabia had been unified by the prophet Muhammad. And the prophet died, giving them the, the new theology of Islam. Uh, the follower, the first follower of Muhammad, the first of the caliphs, Abu Bakr, decided he better keep his people together by launching traditional border raids on the Roman and Persian outposts to get money, to keep the tribes unified. When he did that, when they did that, they found there was really no one there in those fortresses. They'd been so decimated by uh, 20 years of war and plague. And so very quickly these border raids became wars of conquest. And in no time at all, these Bedouin warriors, tough as nails, fired by the new religion of Islam, took Syria, took Palestine. Then they took Egypt, 
which was a massive shock in Constantinople. Egypt had been Roman since the time of Mark Antony and Cleopatra and Augustus, and the main source of their grain supply. Then it was gone, and gone forever to the Romans. Then they, the conquering armies went across North Africa, as you said. Uh, some of the conquerors were able to splash their, uh, ride their horses into the surf of the Atlantic Ocean, of what is now Morocco. And then they went east, and they took all of the Sassanid Persian Empire. That was just gone, gone forever. The elites, the Persian elites, uh, very largely converted to Islam and then became often the viziers and the bureaucrats of this new empire. So where to have a capital? First it was Medina in uh, what is now Saudi Arabia, then Damascus, the Roman city of Damascus, but that was under the Umayyad dynasty which fell under a revolution from the Abbasid dynasty and they wanted their own capital, not somewhere near the Mediterranean because that was old hat. That's not where the money and the action was. They wanted somewhere further east and the Caliph Mansur of the Abbasids decided to build a purposeful capital on the Tigris River. This was in Mesopotamia, the land between the two rivers, one of the most fertile regions on earth because he wanted a giant metropolis. And so this purpose-built capital metropolis, Baghdad, was built on the Tigris near Tesiphon, near Babylon, in this kind of neighborhood of the capitals of formerly great empires. And very quickly, it became the biggest city in the world within 50, 40, 50 years became the biggest city in the world, the richest city in the world, and it was the first medieval city for the population to break the one million person mark. It was founded on a, on a disc in the middle, they called the Round City, which housed the palace and the, the central mosque, and they had gates pointing on the cardinal points of the compass. And after the city's gates were completed, the founding caliph, Mansur, was said to have stood on the gates and looked out and said, here is the Tigris, and nothing stands between it and China. Because they were focused on the burgeoning world of the East. Now, I mean, I don't know about you, Jack, in, in New Zealand, maybe it's the same, but in Australia, weirdly enough, we're all brought up with that kind of Western-centric view of history, which is natural. People are chauvinistic about the cultures they come from, I suppose, but you know, we're all brought up on this myth that civilization is founded in Mesopotamia with Babylon and Sumer and, and the like. It goes west from there to ancient Egypt, west to ancient Greece, to ancient Rome, to medieval uh, and Renaissance Europe, then it crosses the Atlantic where it lands in America and then civilization goes further west where it arrives finally in California where it goes to die. And that's what we're all told <laughs> as, as people as we're growing up. And the early Middle Ages are called a dark age and they certainly were a dark age if you lived in France or in England or uh, Germany, you'd be living in these small villages. London and Paris were muddy little backwaters. But if you lived in Baghdad, or Persia, or India, or Sri Lanka, which was known as the island of Serendip, which is where we get the word serendipity from, if you lived in China and in Central Asia, this was an era where the blood quickens, where you have big cities, you have trade along the Silk Roads, both overland and via the ocean routes as well around the Indian Ocean. This is when people are exchanging ideas about art, culture, religion, enormous profits are being made, goods are being traded, huge wars are taking place. This is a time of a golden age, not a dark age. Okay, speaking of the golden age, you've got a wonderful passage there from Harun al-Rashid, the Caliph of Baghdad, I think page 98 that you were gonna to read to us, that gives people a bit of a sense as to Baghdad in the absolute golden age of Islam. Yeah, this is a bit of a portrait of the most famous of the Abbasid Caliphs, 
Harun al-Rashid, which many people here might have read The Thousand and One Nights, The Thousand and One Arabian Nights, yes? Mm. Yeah. Uh, Harun al-Rashid appears quite regularly in those tales as a character. He, uh, you often find him uh, languishing in his palace in Baghdad at night when it's too hot to sleep, and he says something along the lines of, I'm bored to his friends, let's go out in the city and see if what we can find and they encounter some mystery or an adventure. But he was a real historical uh, figure, Arun al-Rashid, and presided over uh, the golden age of Islam from Baghdad at its imperial height. Harun al-Rashid, tall, good-looking and slim, with wavy hair and olive skin, presided over an empire that stretched from North Africa to India. The English poet Tennyson would later fantasize about the golden prime of good Harun al-Rashid, and even in Harun's own time, Muslims could feel the sunshine of God's goodwill on their faces. Did you not see how the sun came out of hiding on Harun's accession and flooded the world with light? Asked one giddy poet. Harun was, in all likelihood, the wealthiest man who ever lived and spent his riches freely. On his wedding day, he handed out fistfuls of gold and silver coins to people from all over his realm, while his servants distributed brocaded gowns and scented oils from large glass bowls. To his wife, Zubaydah, he gave an ornate sleeveless jacket studded with oversized rubies and pearls. So great were the splendors and riches of his reign, wrote the scholar al-Masudi, such was its prosperity that this period has been called the honeymoon. When Harun came to the throne, Baghdad had become the first medieval city to pass the population threshold of a million people. In the new districts of Rusafa, Shamasia, and Mukharim on the east bank of the Tigris, princes, courtiers, and merchants built palaces and mansions that outshone the grandeur of the Golden Gate Palace in the Round City. While in Baghdad, Harun preferred to dwell in the Casa al-Kuld, the Palace of Eternity, overlooking the Tigris, and so named for its gardens, which were said to rival those in paradise. Here the Caliph could find some respite from the heat of the day and the pressures of court life, sitting in the shaded pavilions of an immense flowered pleasure garden, surrounded by waterfalls and trees, with precious gems studded into their trunks. The palace interiors facing the gardens had been decorated to subtly correspond with the colors blooming outside. One visitor later recalled entering an audience hall carpeted with pink fabric and attended by servants in matching pink silks, which looked out over the treetops of a garden that had burst into leaf with roses and peach and apple blossoms. There's a line that I think Mansour used when he founded Baghdad, describing it as the crossroads of the universe. Yes. And when you go to that description and you think about that term, crossroads of the universe, I'm reminded of New York. Modern, modern New York these days, I think they call Times Square the crossroads of the yeah. universe, which is perhaps somewhat debatable. But it's interesting to think about how we picture the center of culture and, and arts and intellectualism in the modern age. Is it fair to say that's how Baghdad was seen at the time? They saw it that way and they were right to see it that way. If you in your mind's eye just try and get a picture of Baghdad sitting as you know it, where it does in Iraq today, now imagine these vectors going out from it to all the major cities of the time, going out to Constantinople to its west, beyond that to Rome, uh, then to Alexandria on the Mediterranean, to Damascus and Antioch on the, uh, the uh, eastern Mediterranean coast, and then look at it going south. Going south, then you go down towards the lands of the Indian Ocean, curving around 
down the coast, east coast of Africa, where Muslim traders frequently went, where there are a whole lot of Islamic African kingdoms going all the way down beyond Zimbabwe. And then you look from there, another vector's going into the cities of India, going southeast down to Sri Lanka, and then the trade routes of the Arab travelers going across Central Asia into Central China, and the mariners who followed the monsoonal trade winds going around the Indian Ocean coast, through the Malaccas, round the coast of what is now Singapore, and up to Guangzhou, where Muslim traders had their own precinct of Guangzhou in the ninth century, which was ruled over by their own special judge, and this was allowed by the Tang Dynasty emperor of the time. So yes, they saw themselves at the center of the world, at the crossroads of the universe. Can you talk to us a little bit about the tension between Islam, the religion, and the way that the caliphate approached governance? Because they didn't necessarily seek to spread the word all the time. No, I, I think this is the, the answer to why this empire endured. And even, if, even though it's politically fragmented, it still as a culture has endured. And it, the only thing for contrast to look at great conquerors like Napoleon or Hitler or Genghis Khan who appears uh, rather disgracefully at the end of the book, and his grandson who was the man who destroyed Baghdad, uh, Imperial Baghdad in its golden age. These empires were very successful very quickly but over a short period of time because it was all tremble and obey, uh, surrender or die. It was very different. The Islamic conquests were very different by nature. Typically they were conducted by small groups of highly disciplined Bedouin Muslim raiders who went into these territories, like they would arrive in Egypt, in Alexandria, and all the other cities around uh, in, in northern Egypt, and they would offer the locals a deal. They were very conscious of the fact that as Muslims they were, they were very much a tiny minority in these conquered places, which were often very largely Christian in the West and Zoroastrian in the East. And the deal they offered was this. What we require of you is to accept the authority of the Caliph as sovereign in this land now, and as unbelievers, you are required to pay a special tax, a jizya, which locals didn't find too onerous compared to the taxes that the Romans and the Persians had been levying before. If you do that, you'll be left alone, you'll be allowed your uh, churches, you'll be allowed your synagogues, we will not molest you, we will not take your properties. And over time, though, if people wanted to join the governing elite of these areas, or if they were indeed inspired by the words of the Quran, they, they slowly became is Islamized over time. So this isn't true universally for the conquest. There were parts of Central Asia where Muslim conquerors took a surrender or die approach and, and f had forced conversions at the edge of a sword tip. But this was very rare by and large. And this is indeed why Islam became so embedded and so successful. It was said by uh, scholars at the time that Islam talked its way into the world rather than fighting its way with a sword. And it's interesting to think about that in terms of the relationship between Baghdad or the Caliphate and Constantinople, because those early Arab raiders tried to take Constantinople on multiple occasions, militarily, without luck. But is it fair to say that after a fair bit of time, they managed to overwhelm Constantinople in an economic, intellectual, every other non-violent sense. The way to think of Constantinople in the early to mid, to, throughout the Middle Ages is as this kind of wall at which the armies of Islam crashed against. And quite, quite literally, right? Quite literally, yes, quite literally crashed against. Uh, this impregnable city 
that was, remained impregnable pretty much until the invention of the canon, that kept, if you like, grateful Christians uh, believe that it kept Europe safe for Christianity all that time and allowed Europe to remain Christian. If Constantinople had fallen in the eighth century under the two sieges that the armies of the Umayyad Arabs had, had put the city to, then it's, as they say, uh, someone said it would be very likely that uh, scholars in Oxford would be studying under Muslim judges and it would be, they'd be writing in Arabic. It would have been a whole different thing. Constantinople had its own distinct culture uh, and it had the this sense of ineffable grandeur. It inherited the, the, the grandeur of the Roman Empire. The emperors of Constantinople, although they were Christians and didn't wear the togas and spoke Greek rather than Latin, they absolutely saw themselves as, these emperors saw themselves as the descendants of all their Roman emperors going all the way back to Augustus in, in Rome. That gave them a certain kind of gravitas and a certain grandeur and a certain sense of self-belief. But in order to enter the thought world of the Middle Ages of both, I think, the Christians of Constantinople and the Muslims of Baghdad, the most important thing to remember is that they felt that everything was taking place according to God's plan. So when Islam conquers the world so quickly and seemingly without effort, there's this sense that they have of manifest destiny. The Muslims were like the Americans in the 20th century, the British in the 19th century. They felt, we have the best technology, the greatest learning, we are the most literate, well-educated people, we have the best ideology and the best armies. The world is deservedly ours. God has rolled out the red carpet for us. Go out and travel and see the world because it's all ours. We, we, we should be running the world. We deserve to run the world. But when they attacked Constantinople and those two disastrously failed sieges of the early uh, eighth late seventh, early eighth centuries, when they failed so disastrously, they, they would wring their hands and say, what have we done wrong? What have we done to earn God's disfavor? And the Christians of Constantinople were likewise convinced that they'd won the, the, the siege, not because they'd, their brilliant deployment of Greek fire, this kind of flaming petroleum substance that they used to burn down the Muslim navy. No, 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 it was, it was because someone had seen a, a, a vision of the Blessed Virgin Mary above the Theodosian walls above the city. And if you, if, as, as modern 21st century people, if we could talk to those people and say, no, no, it wasn't because of God, it's because of your, your own ingenuity, you created these better warships, you had Greek fire, you did, they, they would say, ah, but who planted the idea in the head of the inventor to do this. Who placed the ships in just the right way? There was always a chain of causality that led to either God looking upon you with favor or with disfavor. And if you, if you failed in your imperial enterprise, that was bad. It meant you'd been bad people and something had to be done about that. One of the great ideas, I think, in the book, so that um those of us who are more geographically challenged than clearly you are, um, is that, that Richard has divided the book into multiple parts, the parts of a compass, north, south, east, and west. So you can see um, the, the different ways in which travelers traveled the world. Talk to us about the attitudes uh, towards the, the prospect of traveling and exploring at the time. Well, like I said, they were mad for books and mad for travel and mad for books about travel. Literacy was very quickly won, uh, beginning with the first great the, and the most, uh, what people regard as the most titanic uh, work of, founding work of Arabic literature, which is the Quran itself. Literacy therefore became uh, a huge prime directive of the Abbasid 
empire. And several things came together to make it the most well-educated and literate city in the world of the time. The first thing was the introduction of a new form of uh, Arabic calligraphy, which meant you could copy books much more quickly. The second thing was the introduction of what we call Arabic numbers, but were, are really Indian numbers. Uh, Arab scholars were very interested in ancient Greek wisdom and ancient Indian wisdom and brought in all these works and translated them into Arabic so they'd have the knowledge of, of Aristotle and Ptolemy and, and uh, great scholars and uh, legends and stories from India as well. And so they imported Indian numbers and suddenly with the familiar numbers we have today, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, seven, calculation becomes a breeze as anyone who's tried to divide MCLXV11 into equal <laughs> portions of LVII will instantly grasp. Uh, mathematics becomes a breeze. Algorithm is, of course, an Arabic word. Uh, and so mathematics starts to have this huge boom. The second thing is the caliphs established a royal library in Baghdad known as the Bayt al-Hikmah, the House of Wisdom, which was a great, uh, a great storehouse of knowledge. And the third thing was the introduction of paper technology from China. Previously, they'd been writing on papyrus, which you can erase easily and therefore forge documents with. Or they'd been writing on parchment made from animal skin, which is incredibly expensive. But paper comes from mashed up plant matter. You put it on a screen, it's fibrous, it's, it's t has a great deal of tensile strength. Uh, it absorbs the ink and holds it, so it's much harder to forge documents. And they found that if they got a sheaf of paper and stacked it together like that and bound it along one edge, you could produce what we call a codex or a normal book. And it's much easier to retrieve information from a book like this than from a lengthy scroll. So with that, the literary world gathered this huge prestige in Baghdad. Uh, it was said at the time that the two most well-paid professions in medieval Baghdad were poet and translator, <laughs> not hedge fund manager. <laughs> and with this came, the combined with the desire to travel meant that people produced, traveling scholars produced these huge compendious geographies of the world with wonderful titles, uh, one of which I've uh, taken for the title of this book. One of the such books was called The Book of Roads and Kingdoms, the original one by Ibn Kiradabek. And there was also this wonderful scholar who I love the most called Alf Masudi, who wrote the most beautiful book called, with the most beautiful title called Meadows of Gold and Mines of Gems. Isn't that a beautiful title for a lovely book? He'd been everywhere. He'd been through Africa. He'd been to the Church of the Holy Sepulchre in Jerusalem. He'd been through Zoroastrian fire temples in Central Asia. He'd been to China. He'd been to Spain. And he came back and wrote this wonderful description of the whole world and everything in it. And also the court histories of Baghdad. Uh, so there was this feeling, this need to write it all down, capture the world in its entirety. And in doing so, of course, was to celebrate the glory of God who created this world. Like uh, Christian medieval scholars, Muslim scholars, thought the world that they'd been born into was this glorious, magnificent puzzle, this huge, complex tesseract of a puzzle. And God had correspondingly also granted them the power of reason to unlock the puzzle bit by bit and see the wonder of God's work in making it. So therefore, the gaining of knowledge was a constantly joyful thing, and to find knowledge, to seek knowledge, even as far as China, as the prophet told his followers to do, was to be constantly delighted by the world that God had created for you. So uncovering knowledge was a joyful thing. Going out into the world was almost an obligation. And how does that impact your role when you're researching? I don't know if I feel exactly the same world, uh, way about the world, but uh, I, um, early on in my life, I think I decided that um, I decided they would never get to the bottom of 
how infinitely interesting the world is. And I think that sense of curiosity has always been, uh, I'm not saying this works for everyone, but for me it's always been the best shield against depression. I find I will never get, to, not, not even to a thousandth of the things that are worth finding out and reading a, a, a about the world. So this makes for me, uh, uh, yeah, research is a joyful process. And to be stuck at home, rather than making sourdough, reading these works written a thousand years ago, to encounter a great mind like Alf Masudi who wrote Meadows of Gold and Mines of Gems, it was just joyful, it was wonderful. It, it really buoyed me up and it was just pure delight to encounter such things. Yeah, it, but I mean, the mere fact that such value was put on written text and on, on sharing experiences throughout this period means that you actually had voluminous material to consider when researching them. I had tons, there's so much of it, and in translation. And the quality of the histories written by the Abbasids is of the absolute highest order. I just don't think the, any other civilization produced history of its own time in the Middle Ages of the sa same level of quality. I encountered the works 34 volumes of Al-Tabari. Tabari, writing in the 10th century, uh, wrote 34 volume history of the Muslim world, beginning with the uh, creation of the world and r leading right up to the, the birth of Islam and to the, uh, the caliph before the last one he was serving under. He was too discreet to write about that. And this is history written really vividly. And it even has a kind of form of academic footnoting although it's like pre-noting rather than footnoting, because for scholars to be seen as rigorous, they had to name their sources. And so at the beginning of these histories, you see, uh, it'll begin with someone said to someone, said to someone, said to someone, told this to someone, told this to someone, told this to someone, told this to Al-Tabari, and then Al-Tabari says, and that's how his book begins. So you can check the sources, these chains of knowledge, which were known as isnads, were a way of, following the sources back to their original source for verification, which is wonderful and rigorous and hugely impressive. But in East, in East, the East chapter of your book, uh, the traveler Salam, the interpreter Salam, gets uh, sent by the Caliph Watik to find the wall of Gog and Magog. Can you tell us a bit about that? Yeah, this was the most fun chapter to write. Uh, sometime in the year around 823 CE, the Caliph Al-Watik had this nightmare and Dreams and the nightmares of the caliphs were thought to be incredibly significant, as you might imagine, because they were the successor of the prophets, the defender of, of faith. And he had a dream that the distant wall of Gog and Magog that was said to exist somewhere out there in the world to the badlands of the far east of the world, uh, a wall that was believed to have been built by Alexander the Great, who was named in the Quran as the two-horned one. Uh, a wall was built there to hold back the apocalypse monsters of Gog and Magog, and the apocalypse that's mentioned in the Quran and in the Bible and in some of the Hebrew holy texts talks about this wall built by Alexander the Great. And one day, uh, the apocalypse would come when the wall would fall and these unholy monsters would then sweep across the face of the earth and uh, invade the holy cities and that would bring about the end of the earth. And so when Watik had this vision, this dream that the wall of Gog and Magog had collapsed, he took it terribly seriously and he sent out a party of people uh, to investigate to see if it was still standing. This, according to the traveler's account in the, book of Rhodes, the original Book of Roads and Kingdoms, was led by a man named Salam, the interpreter, who was said to have mastered a great many languages. And the traveled account is kind of interesting. He said, we, Salam talks about they leave, leave Iraq, they go north around the Caspian Sea, they stop at uh, Tiflis, which we know, we can identify as the city of Tbilisi in modern day Georgia. 
then they go past the Caspian Sea, then the language becomes a bit abstract. He said, from there we entered a black and putrid land, a foul-smelling land. We wandered through there, then we came into another desolate area where we counted the ruined cities, ruined by Gog and Magog. And keeping marching further east, we encountered strange peoples, and then eventually we landed at a town called Yimu or Igu, and a day after that, we found it. We came to the wall of Gog and Magog. And Salam, in his account, says, it's just like it is in the Quran. This gigantic wall made out of metal bricks, uh, it's all fine, it was all still standing. There are all these guards, good Muslim guards, keeping an eye on the wall. Uh, three times a week, he says, they ride out with hammers, they go up to the big gates, they bang on it with hammers, they go clang, 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 and if they hear the monsters behind it going like that, they know everything's fine, the monsters are still stuck behind the wall, uh, the, the holy, holy cities are, are safe, it's all gonna be fine. And, and he, he comes back, he describes his return voyage, his return trip uh, back to, uh, to the caliph and says, it's all fine, your majesty, nothing to worry about. Now, for, for a long while, this journey was thought to have been like one of those medieval Arabic wonder tales. But in the 19th century, his translator, his Dutch translator, the Goji, thought, maybe there's something in this. Look at, just look at it. Now, the Goji planned out his own route, and I, I think I can identify uh, a different kind of route. He said, going out of Tbilisi, he said, we went to a black and putrid land. Now, if you look on the other side of the Caspian Sea is the Karakum Desert, uh, which Karakum is a word that means black sands. It's a desert famous for its black shale sands, its vast methane deposits. This is where the Soviet Union had a uh, gas rig once in the 1970s that fell into a gas crater. And so they set fire to it to burn the gas off, uh, and it's still burning today. It's, still, it's become a tourist attraction. It's known as the gate to hell. Uh, black and putrid land, indeed, methane gas, black sand. Then he said we entered the ruined cities of Gog and Magog, and this is where I hypothesize, and this is pure hypothesis, it's pure hypothesis. I found the stories of these lost cities in the Taklamakan Desert. And when you come over the Pamir Mountains, out of that region I was speaking of before, from the Karakum, you arrive at Kashgar, the westernmost city in modern day China, which sits on the rim of the Taklamakan Desert a desert the size of modern-day Germany. And this is one of the most inhospitable places on the face of the earth. And it has these uh, ancient Buddhist cities in them that are, are totally buried by the desert sand. In the early 20th century, Western archaeologists came through there to dig them up and take their treasures, which is a whole story in itself. And they've since been sort of filled in again. This is possibly, this is my best explanation for the ruined cities of Gog and Magog. But then you get to Igu, this town he identified. It's a homonym for Yimu, which is on the far side of the Taklamakan Desert, and that's a day's ride from the westernmost reaches of the Han Great Wall of China. So I don't say it's likely, I think it's possible he got as far as the Great Wall of China. You can certainly pick out a route that would have taken him there and back again. These desert walls look nothing like the wall that's described in the Quran. They're walls made out of matted uh, heaps of luwaiwi because there's no rocks in this desert. So they, they took it out of reeds from the, uh, the, the, the oasis swamps and built up impressive walls as a result of that. They're still there today. The ruins of the Jade Gate are still there today next to it. The Jade Gate was famous in Tang Dynasty China as the last post of civilization where Chinese pilgrims risked their lives by leaving the Middle Kingdom and going out to the dangerous 
world beyond. So that's my theory. Uh, Dagoji had another theory. It's, I love the idea that he went out all the way beyond to the far side of the Taklaman Desert, to Gansu Province, China, and came home again. And of course, when you go back there, what are you going to say to the caliph? You're not going to say, yeah, we went to the wall of Gog and Magog and it looks like nothing like in the Quran. <laughs> You're going to go back and say, oh, no, it's like the, your majesty, it's all fine, nothing to worry about. <laughs> so, so that's my theory. Uh, it's only a theory, like I say, but it's a kind of a fun theory. But I've also matched that with the story of those archaeologists, like Mark Orlstein and others who came through the area and took stuff they really shouldn't have taken in the early 20th century too. What pleasure do you get from hypothesizing when you piece these little different things together. Well, I think I imagine myself in Salam the Interpreter's shoes and finding his way and finding descriptions of places that match the places I've been looking at on the map and looking at Chinese and Indian accounts of these places. His, the description of his journey of what might be the rim road of the Taklamakan Desert matches beautifully with the account of a Chinese pilgrim by the name of Xuanzang who uh, several centuries earlier had come through the area uh, as a pilgrim, uh, defying the orders of the emperor not to not leave the kingdom, to travel through the Taklamakan Desert and drop down into India so he could find the original uh, analects of the Buddha and translate them from the original Sanskrit. Because in China, the translations they had of uh, the stories of the Buddha were not very good translations at all. And by the time Xuanzang came back, it was a journey of like 25, 30 years. When he returned, he came back as a hero. And his accounts of going through the Taklamakan, because he couldn't go through the border areas because the, the emperor's guards would arrest him. He, he had to go into the desert. He talks about the dangerous visions you get in the Taklamakan. And these so weirdly correspond with Marco Polo's accounts of going through the Taklamakan Desert where you go through the desert sands, you suffer strange hallucinations, you see a far off army on horseback coming towards you and then they, the spirits sort of fly all around you. Xuanzang wrote about exactly the same thing but going the other way. It's so delightful to find these correlations. And the other great correlation I, I really loved was that the Caliph Batik who had sent Salam on this mission was obsessed with Alexander the Great as so many uh, kings, caliphs and emperors were at the time because Alexander set this impossible standard that none of them could meet. He'd conquered the known world in, by, the, by, the, by, the, by his 30s. Julius Caesar would have, was, was said to have wept while he was merely the governor in Spain at the same age that Alexander died. He said, look at me, I, I, I've failed to meet his, his, uh, <laughs> the challenge of his record. And Watique was haunted by the aura of greatness of Alexander the Great. And similarly, I find Mark Orlstein coming through from as a Hungarian British archeologist, comes through, he too is obsessed with Alexander the Great and wants to follow in Alexander the Great's footsteps. And this, it all is of a piece of this feeling of, of how temporal it all is how easily it all passes, that Shelley and Ozymandias, the, the thing, all things must pass. The, we live in the greatest city of the world in Baghdad, but this will fade and disappear one day, and will anyone ever remember us? We're all doomed to die. I might be caliph today, but I, I, I will die like everyone else on the planet. And they're haunted by that and wondered if they'd enter the Hall of Legends like Alexander did. In the original source material, is there any work by women? Just barely. This, above all the other books I've written, was, uh, the, was the most scant when it came to finding unredacted voices of women. 
This was very hard here. Uh, all these societies at the time were very patriarchal, of course, but they did allow, other societies did allow brilliant women to come through from time to time. In Constantinople, there was the great Irene of Athens, one of the most extraordinary figures of the whole of the Middle Ages, who definitely ought to be better remembered. She's an amazing human being. Uh, and Anna Komnenos, who wrote uh, the Alexiad, the, one of the first medieval proper work of uh, history in that part of the world. Here it was much harder, and the reason was because the Muslims sequestered their noble women into a harem, the city of women, in Baghdad, which took up a huge part of the city and was like a kind of a parallel city with its own reigning figure, which was often the queen mother, sometimes the queen, but after a certain period, caliphs stopped marrying, they just had concubines, so it was the queen mother who would be the predominant figure in the harem. And they appear, but you hear their voices, uh, their, their stories told through male historians. The one class of people whose voices I believe I found un, un uh, uh, redacted were the slave singers. This was a whole cast of women in Baghdad. Talented girls who showed some aptitude for music would be sent to Medina to be educated in music theory, history, and practice. They would be uh, incredibly well trained, and they became a part of a sort of like a very talented uh, class of women that was like part rock star, part geisha. They would become the slaves of powerful and rich and influential men and be brought, invited into the men who'd be sitting around drinking. Yes, they drank alcohol in Baghdad. Yes, they did. They said sorry to God in the morning, but they drank alcohol. Uh, and, and they went to entertain them by playing songs they'd written themselves on the oud, the uh, Arabic lute. And often they would have that extraordinary skill of being able to just completely improvise poetic quatrains just off the top of their heads. They write these kind of incredible tributes to these extraordinary women. And of course, they were given license to give the men a hard time. They would, because you know, men like nothing more than have one of them, their companies singled out and mocked, and then all the other men will fall about laughing. And so they're often known for their cruel wit, uh, yet they were still slaves. There were rules about who was uh, permitted and not permitted to have sex with them. Only their masters were permitted to have sex with them, but no one else under pain of death. They would become quite powerful, but they would often send, like Harun al-Rashid fell madly in love with uh, two of his slave singers, and would often send like, flirty bits of poetry back and forth to each other. And I have the lines from some of these women in this book and they're witty, funny, and some of them just burn with desire because this was not a very chaste society. This was all about, you know, if you wanted someone, you said so and you wrote about it poetically and masterfully at times as well. <laughs> you are, of course, not just a historian, not just a writer, but you are an incredibly popular and successful host of ABC's Conversations. Radio and TV is very collegial. You work with uh, wonderful people. I, I work with really wonderful producers. I'm very, very fortunate like that. And that's such a pleasure to work collegially with them. But then it's also nice to work on your own as well. But that's, that's a real pleasure as well, the quiet of that, as opposed to the hecticness mm. and the collegiality of broadcasting. I think both appeal to different sides of, of me and uh, perhaps to you as well, Jack. I don't know. Uh, well, I couldn't pull off something like this, Richard. <laughs> I don't know. Perhaps neither guy told I, I, I don't think I, once I... When I wrote my first book, someone said to me, why have you read, waited so long to write a book? And I was quite flabbergasted. I had to think about that for quite a while. And I, I don't really... I think I just had to wait to get old enough, I think. Uh, mm. I, it wasn't the kind of the person who would write that brilliant book in my 20s. I, I had to wait till I felt confident enough in, uh, to get older before I could start writing a book, I think. You, you return to him time and time again. 
Masudi, all throughout your, your story, and I wondered if maybe we could close out the session with that beautiful little opening passage um, that Masudi has offered up, a recipe for invisibility. Yes, now this is important, so take notes, everyone, on this. <laughs> this is a potion for invisibility. This is how my book begins. I was, uh, I was smugly pleased with my opening line of this book. I found this from a letter Masudi had written to a friend. Uh, this is how you become invisible. Anyone can do this. First, you must find a dead cat. The animal must have already died from old age or from some misadventure. You must not slaughter one for this purpose. Carefully remove the dead cat's head and hollow out its eyes. Then take it to a patch of ground in a place where no one's likely to visit. Dig a hole. The hole should be as deep as the distance from your elbow to the fingertips. Put some dung at the bottom, place the cat's head inside the pit so that it faces up to the sky. Now you must do this. In both eye sockets, place a castor oil seed, then fill the rest of the hole with dung, pat it down, sprinkle a handful of fine dirt around the edges in a circle, then place a round stone on top. No one must see you do this. Every day for the next 30 days, you must irrigate the site with blood. Now, this must be procured from a blood letter. Again, no creature should be harmed. If after 40 days there is a shoot from the soil, good. If not, continue watering it with blood for 60 days. If it sprouts, good. If not, then continue watering it in this manner for 70 days. If not, then for 90 days. Tell no one of this. After a time, one or two plants may grow. When they begin to bear fruit, and this is crucial, you must not let the fruit fall from the tree to the ground. Instead, carefully harvest some seeds from the pods. Then you must climb up to a high place, like a rooftop, and sit there with the seeds in your lap. To your left, there must be a 14-year-old boy on the cusp of puberty. <laughs> to your right, there must be another 14-year-old boy who is also not yet a man. Put one of the seeds in your mouth, then turn to the boy on your left and ask, do you see me? <laughs> if the boy says, yes, then turn to the boy on your right, taking care not to lose your balance, and ask, do you see me? If he also says, yes, then throw the seed away and place another seed in your mouth. <laughs> Repeat this process with each of the other seeds until you find the one seed that when placed in your mouth will make both boys answer, no. <laughs> they will likely say this with some astonishment. Carefully place this special seed inside a signet ring concealed under a jewel, wear the ring on your finger. Then, whenever you wish to avoid someone in the marketplace, put the ring in your mouth and disappear. Many people have done this and succeeded. Yeah. <laughs> Tried it many times and it's never <laughs> bloody worked. Tried uh, to avoid dull people in the marketplace, put the ring in my finger, I'm still there. It's not the ring of power. But, I'm not Frodo, no. But critically, you know that it's a prank because... I think it's a prank. I think the whole thing's a prank because Masudi says, don't kill a cat. You've got to, it's already got to be dead. Go to a bloodletter, don't kill any animal to get the blood. Go to a bloodletter instead. Because I, I think he just wants to get his idiot friend to climb on a roof, put a seed in his mouth and ask a gormless teenager, how about now, am I invisible yet, Barry? And, uh, <laughs> uh, and I think it's just a prank because he wants no animal harmed in the making of this practical yeah. joke. Uh, we are out of time. And join me in thanking Richard Feidler. Thank you very much. <laughs> <laughs>